Hey everybody, come on over here. It's the Northern Miner Podcast. the Northern Miner Podcast. I'm your host, John Cumming. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner, and the music is a little extra festive this week. Why? Because it's the celebration of our 100th episode here at the Northern Miner Podcast. Uh, we want to, of course, thank Matt Keevil and Leslie Stokes, who started the show out in Vancouver almost two years ago. The last month and a half or so, Trish, uh, Richard, and I have picked it up in Toronto, and we're carrying on. More than anyone, we want to thank our listeners who've stuck with us, and uh, the podcast keeps growing. We're getting very positive feedback from it. Uh, Here people are listening to it while they're commuting. They're listening to it while at the gym, uh, at home, doing the dishes, uh, at work. So uh, we're we're very uh, thankful for that. Within a few days, we'll be celebrating another milestone here. We'll be hitting 100,000 listens to the podcast. Quite a mark there. We want to have a little shout-out to our three top listeners of all time. Number one is Ben McMills, whoever that is. Number two is User5870123. Thank you, User5870123, for your support. <laughs> and number three is Ron Burgundy. I think that may be a phony name. I always like love looking through the stats on the podcast because it's different than the paper. In the top cities, of course, Toronto is number one. For our listeners, number two is Vancouver. And uh, number three all-time listeners are uh, from San Francisco, which is uh, quite different than the paper. So people love their podcast in San Francisco, and it'd be interesting to find out exactly why people are listening to the podcast in San Francisco. Certainly the technology medals would be uh, of interest, I would think, there, and just high-risk capital. And then if you look at the top countries for our listeners, just in 2018, of course, it's the top four are the uh, Anglosphere mining countries. It's uh, Canada, the U.S., the U.K., and Australia, with uh, the U.K. and Australia switching back and forth. And then further down the list, number five, Sweden, Finland, Japan, France. I know we have a lot of listeners in Helsinki. And uh, Finland, Japan, and France, the listenership has been rising uh, over the past year. Going through the rest of the list here, the top 15, Brazil, Germany, Mexico, Turkey, Netherlands, South Korea, and and Indonesia. So uh, just like our business, the listenership to the Northern Miner podcast is global. Another stat here, if you go to the um, SoundCloud website, this jumps out at you. The the most popular podcast by far is episode 70, and that was the full unabridged Robert Friedland session. That was from the Canadian Mining Symposium in London last year that we put on. That has continually gotten good uh, traffic, and and it's such timeless material in in the terms of a podcast that uh, people are still coming to it every single day. And I'm just getting ready to leave for London uh, in a few days. We will be uh, recording that uh, Canadian Mind Symposium, but this will be over two days, so we'll have quite a bit of material from that coming forward. Let's take a moment to thank our sponsors. The Yukon Mining Alliance has been our long-term sponsor, our, our, our greatest sponsor over the life of the podcast. Let me see just something that's coming up. It's a big event in 
Toronto, May 30th. This is Invest Yukon Toronto, and it's uh, hosted by the government of the Yukon, but the Yukon Mining Alliance is helping out with the organization, and that will be a presentation by the new Premier of the Yukon, Sandy Silver, as well as the Minister of Economic Development and the Minister of Energy, Mines and Resources, one person, that's Ranj Pillai. Yeah, so if you're interested in the Yukon, you're in Toronto, see if you can uh, attend that one. Let me think another bit of news out of the Yukon. People are gearing up for the summer uh, work, spring and summer work. You have uh, Victoria Gold has closed, if not all, but almost all of their um, $505 million aggregate uh, uh, construction financing package. Yeah, that project is definitely going full steam ahead. And our second sponsor is the Grosso Group out of Vancouver, headed up by Joe Grosso. And some news out of the Grosso Group, uh, Blue Sky Uranium has filed its 43101 technical report on the um, resource estimate at its Ivana deposit at the company's 100% owned Amarillo Grande Uranium Vanadium project in Rio, Rio Negro province in Argentina. And uh, some of the headline numbers here. The deposit contains, uh, so far, 19 million pounds of U-308 and 10.2 million pounds of vanadium oxide. We have a great show for you this week. First, I'll run through the uh, latest metal prices and commodity prices. And then we have a couple of uh, mystery guests going to phone in from Vancouver to celebrate the 100th episode. And then our featured guest this week is John F.H. Thompson. He's a... uh, Cornell University professor and uh, consultant, but the role we're going to talk about this week is that he is the general chair of the steering committee for the new Resources for Future Generations Conference, RFG 2018. That's going to be happening in uh, June in uh, Vancouver. So we're going to talk about that conference and just the general uh, future of mining, uh, big picture stuff. Now let's take a break and we'll return with a commodities roundup. Now, the commodity markets are just roaring these days. It's really uh, very impressive. Lots going on. It may may have changed by the time you hear this podcast. Right now, we're just into the evening on April 18th. That's Wednesday. Number one, of course, so influential across the world is the oil price. It just keeps going up and up and up. And right now, we have crude climbing to its highest level since 2014 after across-the-board declines in U.S. stockpiles of oil, gasoline, diesel, and jet fuel as uh, tightness uh, appears in supplies. Right now we have WTI, West Texas Intermediate, for May delivery is up another $2. It's at 68.47 a barrel. And then in over in Europe, the Brent for June settlement climbed almost $2 to end the session at 73.48. And the most important factor right now with oil is the OPEC countries are being disciplined in their... Um, desire to raise the price. For many years, there's uh, not been a discipline. Perhaps that's a new uh, factor is the uh, new crown prince in Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman. The price of oil is getting so high, I can see some pushback on that coming. Over into precious metals, we have gold at 1348. Holding steady there with 
uh, even though with oil prices are rising. Silver has popped back up above $17, which is great news for silver bugs. It's $17.17. Platinum is at $9.40. It's been flat and declining, really, over the past two months. It was about $1,000 a couple months ago, and now it's $9.40. Palladium is uh, going in the other direction. It's $10.28 an ounce right now. If you look at the 30-day palladium chart, it's, it's a big V. It was about $900 just in early April, and now it's up well over 1000 So uh, good for palladium, not so good for platinum. And another one we don't speak about too much, but rhodium is doing really well. Rhodium, if you look at the one-year chart, it looks like a jet plane taking off. It's just it hovered around 1000 for um, many months, and then around September or so, it started rising, and now it's at 1910 so it's doubled, basically, over the past uh, nine months or so. So good for rhodium. And let's go over to the base metals. We have copper. Actually, you know, all the base metals are doing very well, uh, especially today. It's one of the strongest days I've seen uh, in a long, long time. Copper is up 2% today. It's now at 13.16 per pound. Nickel up 7% today, uh, $6.89 a pound. Aluminum, very strong again, is up uh, 5%. We'll talk about that in more detail. Zinc, uh, $1.46. It's up almost 3%. Lead, even lead is going up. It's $1.07 a pound. Back to that aluminum, we had uh, devoted most of the show last week to a Roussel sanction. So that has really sown a lot of uh, uncertainty into the aluminum and the alumina market. Since that April 6th, Sanctions imposed by the U.S. on Russia. Uh, aluminum prices are up 20%. Just today, they're up 3% again. On a per ton basis, which is more common in aluminum, we have uh, U.S. dollars 2,490 a ton right now. Some people are saying 3,000 a ton. I, I'm not really sure. There's always been so much capacity in the aluminum. I'd be surprised if, if they could keep rallying, but I could be wrong. It could be 3,000 by the time you're reading this. And also, if... I could see Russia selling to China and then China selling excess out. Well, anyway, I'm, I'm sure there's some money to be made on the sanctions. And it's a bit like a Cold War, Cold War within the aluminum. You had the Russell last week, so let's take a look at Alcoa, the biggest aluminum producer in the U.S., and they just came out with their results about a half hour ago, and there's a conference call going on right now. Alcoa is a little funny. They always try to be the first out uh, in the mining industry or among the major companies with their... Um, quarterly results. So right now we have Alcoa. Their quarterly results are down quite a bit here. Their net income for the first quarter, $150 million on revenue of $3.1 billion. And, uh, they're really uh, almost debt-free. They have $1.2 billion in cash and $1.5 billion of debt. They're not one of these heavily debt- indebted companies. Now it's interesting they're coming out with these quarterlies just a few weeks or a few days after the sanctions. So they've had to revise their outlook for the rest of the year quite a bit. So quite a big change here. Let me just read it out. Uh, Alcoa also updated its full-year outlook for adjusted EBITDA, excluding special items, to range between $3.5 billion to $3.7 billion. And that's up from the prior quarter's range of $2.6 billion to $2.8 billion due to recent favorable market conditions. Yeah, their EBITDA is well over a billion extra because of the latest... Uh, uh, turbulence in the market and the price rise. And then further down the road, Alcoa says, due to delays in projects to expand smelters in China, Alcoa expects the global aluminum deficit to grow to between 600,000 metric tons and 1 million tons this year. 
And then in Illumina, Alcoa projects a global deficit as well, primarily due to supply disruptions in the Atlantic region. And overall, their um, statement is, considerable uncertainty remains in the global supply chain due to multiple trade sanctions, sanctions, and supply disruptions. That's Alcoa's world. And some statistics pulling out of their quarterlies. I should say the Alcoa shares are up 10% already. Uh, year to date, and then just in after hours trading on these quarterlies, it's up another four percent. So Al- yeah, Alcoa shares are doing doing very well. Just some numbers out of their quarterlies here. They expect demand growth for 2018 to be 4.2 percent. This is aluminum, primary aluminum demand growth globally, 4.2 percent gr- demand growth to 5.25 percent, and leading that is demand out of China expected to be 5.75 to 6.25% demand growth, and the rest of the world is 325 to 3.75%. So very strong uh, demand growth that Alcoa sees worldwide this year. Now, to celebrate our 100th episode, we have a couple of mystery guests coming to us from Vancouver. Uh, Let's go to Skype. And now we have our two mystery guests. They will be uh, familiar to our longtime listeners. We have a male and female. Mystery guest number one, the uh, lady, please introduce yourself. Hey, it's Leslie Stokes. I'm back. Hey, Leslie. And number two. How's it going? Hey, it's uh, Matthew Keeble. You might recognize my voice. <laughs> Welcome back to the show. We've uh, hit 100th uh, show here over two years, and it's all because Woo! of the uh, work you two did. Congratulations. <laughs> it's your yeah, work more than mine, exciting. that's for sure. Thanks very much, John. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been quite the ride. Eh? So <laughs> I would say the uh, number one question uh, people would have is, what have you been doing, both of you? Oh, gosh. Well, I think everyone kind of might know what I've been doing is just raising a human being. (laughs) (laughs) So I've been um, on that leave from the minor, I guess, since mid-January, gave birth to a beautiful boy named Casey. And he's about three months old now. And he's amazing. Yeah, just such a such a wonderful ride into motherhood. Like I had no idea what it was all about until you actually do it. And it's just the most extraordinary experience. Yeah. Yeah, and how is he uh, behaving and everything, sleeping? and yeah, yeah, he's sleeping pretty good. He suffers from serious FOMO during the day, so he's oh. just this fear of missing out. So he's super alert and always yeah. watching and kicking and kind of fussing during the day. But at night, he's like a bit of a unicorn baby, they call it, where they oh. sleep like quite quite a bit. Like I can get seven, eight-hour stretches if I'm lucky, but usually it's four or five. And uh, Matt, let's jump into you. We uh, know you went to attack, but how has it been the last, uh, I guess, month or so? Oh, my, yeah. I, uh, as everyone probably knows by now, I am uh, now the VP Corporate Affairs at ATAC Resources. And uh, I started the job at PDAC, which is uh, sort of hitting the ground running, as they say, 
Um, and it's yeah, it's been pretty enlightening. I mean, uh, it's it's a lot different than covering the industry from the media side. I mean, there's just so much that goes into running a public company, a, a publicly listed company on the venture that we really we really didn't think about. I guess before I jumped in, and it's uh, been yeah, been an education more than anything, and really fun. Uh, we're work, obviously working alongside Barrick Gold, so working with one of the the biggest gold companies in in designing exploration programs and all that fun stuff uh, has been yeah, really really uh, an eye opener and. Uh, it's been a fun new experience so far. When I heard that Matt was moving over to ATAC, I was really excited because I had just went there for the Yukon <laughs> Symposium, right? Oh, and yeah. visited yeah. the project and saw the rocks, and it was just like such a spectacular group of people working the ground. So I thought it was like such a good move for Matt to take that sidestep into that position. So congratulations, Matt. Thank you, Leslie. Thank you. And congratulations <laughs> to you again with uh, Casey. <laughs> Baby Casey's the best. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, with Casey, just for our listeners here, this is, uh, you know, uh, Leslie is just a geologist and scientist through through the core there, and uh, this was just her uh, part of her baby announcement to the whole team here. She oh. said, uh, Br- bringing life into this world is like a supernova in space, a catastrophic explosion that hurtles stardust through the galaxy. And then there's a beautiful <laughs> photo of her baby Casey, and then it's got a nice rock hammer yeah. for scale beside the... Of uh, course. So. <laughs> Always the scientists. <laughs> through and through yeah. to the end, yeah. <laughs> yeah. My dad was a, a PhD geologist, and I'm in tons of photos, and I realized I'm there for scale, basically, <laughs> with beautiful <laughs> rocks. <there. laughs> I thought I was like a popular son, but uh, I'm just there for scale. Now, uh, we're also celebrating, I think in a couple of days, we'll have 100,000 listens as well as wow. our 100th episode, and it's a nice... Uh, trajectory going up the whole way it's uh, pretty good so is there something that stands out in your memory of uh, bringing this uh, podcast to life matt you want to start with that one yeah sure i mean <laughs> just that it was uh general general the learning curve i guess and and the early days of the podcast was a bit hectic <laughs> um trying to put everything together and leslie and i were really sort of learning as we uh we went so it was a, a very iterative process in terms yeah. of uh, sort of getting the thing up and running and getting uh, the ability to sort of interview people at shows and running around yes. and how to set up the phone lines and all that kind of <laughs> stuff. I mean, it was uh, another really enlightening experience, I would say, and it was uh, very cool. Uh, I think, uh, like uh, like we say, uh, the Northern Mine is one of the best um, sort of positions to be in in the industry because you sort of get a bird's eye view of, of everything that's going on. So you're sort of really... Yeah really get an idea about the industry in context, the projects in context, all the analogs mm-hmm. and everything. So you're, a lot of mining company executives and people can get a little parochial in how they look at things in terms of their own projects, but at the miner yes. you get everything. So it was a really good sort of viewpoint to chat with everybody and, and really, you know, get in the room. We've gotten the, we got in the room with a lot of, you know, really high-level executives, and I don't think a lot of people um, get that sort of access uh, to to this industry, and uh, yes. I think what really stood out to me is is uh, some of the exclusivity of the content uh, we ended up generating. Just because you know we we were really a first mover in podcasting, and mm-hmm. some of the <laughs> some of the steps we had to take was actually convincing people it wasn't absolutely insane what we were doing. So <laughs> it was uh, it was certainly fun early on. Yeah, it's very tricky to yeah. get the sound. I, I'm learning that <laughs> what what you're hearing yeah, in your yeah. headphones is not necessarily what's being recorded, and uh, to balance out the different voices and then the different segments. And uh, thank God for YouTube tutorials. <laughs> I've learned a lot. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
And then, yeah, it uh, was definitely an evolution from the from the get go. I mean, we would just be sitting down, Matt and I, just kind of talking about different projects and what was on our plate that week, and it just kind of evolved. Where I ended up going into the geology corner, and for me, that was like such a cool outlet to not only just express like my passion for geology, but also to like remind people just. You know, geology isn't just about rocks, it's about a history, and it can be fun, and it's engaging. And that can also help a lot of investors make better decisions when it comes to their investing choices. Like, you know, there'd be so many times where I would just be watching Newswire, and you'd hear about projects, and the geology's kind of really misunderstood. People don't understand it, and then that kind of feeds into the speculation. So I really loved having the geology corner where I can say, hey, let's talk about these kind of deposits right now and what kind of expectations there can be, what some of the upsides. And that was really fun for me to be able to, yeah, just like share in the love of geology, but also share in the education of it. Yeah, and completely unique out there. And then uh, you guys have such great personalities that just came through <laughs> so it's well. Cool. Thanks, and it's John. a different kind of, uh, you know, the Northern Miner, when you write an article, you kind of take your personality out of the article and just write about your subject. But the podcast is more mm-hmm. conversational and everything. So it's a different kind of uh, format entirely. Mm-hmm. And very valuable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Because we learn a lot on the side, like a lot of things that I couldn't write about because I had to be unbiased, of course, like in all of my writing. Um, there's a lot of things that like I couldn't speak about, but that's kind of part of the story. So it definitely provided a bit of an outlet where you can tell the whole story, the backstory behind the curtain. <laughs> Well, I, I'm I'm currently preparing John to uh, head over to the Northern Miners Canadian Mine Symposium in London. Oh. So I will yeah. uh, oh, certainly okay. see you there, April 24th and 25th, I believe. Yeah. So uh, we're uh, we're heading out. Uh, we will be stopping briefly through Toronto uh, <laughs> the next couple of days, and then on to New York. Uh, but then we'll see uh, everyone over there in uh, in London for the big Northern Miner Show. And then yeah. uh, Leslie's been pretty busy there, but. You're starting to think about coming back with the geology corner or something, maybe? <laughs> well, you know, Possibly this I spend, year. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> I spend so busy. much of my time just, like, Googling, what's normal behavior in babies? Why is my baby <laughs> screaming for two hours straight? <laughs> and I feel like I could probably use that time to do better research. <laughs> That's <Yes>. probably <laughs> more useful. Um, but especially now that, you know, the past few months, it's just been a bit of a learning curve and now everything's feeling yeah. pretty good with, uh, the baby Casey. So, um, yeah, I, I'm thinking about like, you know, putting in a couple of, um, some time into getting a new geology corner on the go for my yeah. sake of sanity and maybe <laughs> for the listeners, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> a little bit of a break. No, no promises, but there may be something no promise. somewhere down the road <laughs> yeah. during this year. Everything <laughs> can change tomorrow <laughs> when yeah. it comes to babies. Okay, sounds good. And thanks for joining us, and uh, see you guys around. Thanks, All right, well, John, John congrats. Yeah. And congratulations on uh, episode 100 there, John. Uh, I will yeah. continue to be an avid listener of the podcast, <laughs> so please do mm-hmm. continue making such great content. Thanks. Mm-hmm. And myself as okay. well, John. Congratulations, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye now. So joining us here is uh, John F.H. Thompson out of Vancouver um, via Skype. John, how are you doing, first off? Very well, thank you. 
Oh, good to have you with us. Possibly the smartest person we've ever had on our podcast. But I want to just take a bit of time. <laughs> I, I doubt that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to take a bit of time to give some of your background. I, I know ev- everyone Absolutely. in Vancouver knows exactly who you are, but we have this global audience. So, because your background has a lot to do with what we're going to talk about today. Uh, yeah. So right off the bat, you're an Ivy League uh, professor. You're at Cornell, and you're a professor of environmental balance for human sustainability. Which is quite a, quite a mouthful, and uh, you're a UK native, of course, and uh, you have a BA from Oxford, uh, MSc, PhD from University of Toronto, and then right into industry with BP Minerals in '82, and then yep. back into uh, kind of academic style of uh, role in 1991 as director of the Mineral Deposit Research Institute at the University of British Columbia, which is a fantastic institution, and then back into industry again in '98 as chief geoscientist for tech. I presume that's in Vancouver, yeah. and then uh, Vice Correct. President of Technology and Development at Tech. Yeah. And then leaving Tech and becoming uh, uh, head of your own consulting firm, Principal for PetroScience Consultants with your wife, I guess, in uh, Vancouver. Yeah. And then some of the uh, many, many roles here, uh, Director, Past Chair and Founder of Geoscience BC, uh, Member of the Global Agenda Council on the Future of Mining and Metals with the World Economic Forum, uh, Genome BC, you were a co-founder of uh, Canadian Mining Innovation Council, president of the um, Society of Economic Geologists, many awards here, distinguished lecturer from the SEG, Society of Economic Geologists, uh, special awards from AIM in uh, BC with a special tribute just a few years ago, mentorship medal from the Canadian Federation of Earth Scientists, uh, lecture awards, distinguished service award from the GAC, uh, Geological Association of Canada. And then many, many publications, uh, just an outstanding resume. But uh, enough of that. You've, you have the <laughs> academic and the uh, industry role. Now, how did you bring it together to talk about, uh, to, for what we're going to talk about today? Uh, so, I mean, you know, this sounds like I've done a lot, and, I've, and I have, and I've been very <laughs> lucky to have a lot of variety in what I've done. Yes. And that speaks to kind of my interests. I have a broad range of interests, so although I've been... I've had academic stints and pursued some, you know, some research and what have you. I, I've always been most interested in the kind of the breadth that our business offers, from mm-hmm. understanding resources in the ground through to producing metals and products that we need. And as my career advanced, I got to do more and more and learn more and more about our business, particularly yeah. the latter roles with tech, and realized, I mean, a, it's just an incredible business we have, but enormous challenges that we have, and we're vital, but we need to do always be needing to improve and do things better. So mm-hmm. I, that's kind of drew me into trying to answer some of those key questions and also get into a position where I can explain those challenges to other people, whether teaching students or working with other groups or whatever it may be, talking to you or your audience, you know, who are probably much more familiar than most people. But trying to explain you know, the, vi- the vital need that we represent, the, the, the services and materials that we provide, and the challenges that we have to face in order to do that in the best way possible. Uh, you are the General Chair of the Steering Committee for the Resources for Future Generations Conference, which is going to be a big, brand-new conference uh, held June 16th, 21st, uh, 2018, just a couple months away, the Vancouver Conference Center. So this is a very ambitious goal here. Uh, right down your alley of bringing together diverse people, diverse disciplines. Uh, what What is this conference going to be about? 
So it's an attempt, and I, I should say it right up front, I, you know, I didn't initiate this conference. It came about through a, a group of Canadians who uh, bid for an international geological congress through an organization called the International Union of Geological Sciences. Mm -hmm. And uh, they didn't win that bid. It's somewhat like the Olympics of conferences in the geo world. And, right. But the, uh, the organizers came back and said, would you do a, this sort of conference specifically on the theme of resources? And, you know, being Canadians and being involved in the resource business, many people were very supportive of that idea. So mm -hmm. it got established, and I came on board a year, a year and a half later as uh, they yes. sought to get organized and so on. And I came on because, for all the reasons I've just talked about, the theme really appealed to me. It's a theme that was very close to my heart, so it wasn't a difficult one to get behind. Right. So what the conference is trying to do is to draw together people who represent you know, energy, the energy world, the minerals world, and and the uh, water kind of world and business to talk about common issues, common problems, and solutions. And we all do our own things in our own sectors in different ways, and yet we don't talk to each other very effectively or very often. And so this is an opportunity to do that and put it in the context of of the earth, which is the provider of the, of the materials, ultimately, the source yes. of energy, water, and minerals, and, of course, the environment in which we have to work to, in order to extract things effectively. So it gives that, that a science piece, and then think about how, we, how that all kind of interacts with society in the bigger picture, you know, from the regulatory world of governments through to local communities, indigenous people, and so on, the people on the ground who we interact with in order to get their approval to go ahead. Right, right. And I should say, you've got some uh, big backers here. You've got three main organizers, uh, Canadian Institute of Mining, Metallurgy, and Petroleum, the Geological Association of Canada, and the Mineralogical Association of Canada, the GACMAC, and then the supporters, as you say, the IUGS, as well as the Canadian Federation of Earth Sciences and the federal government. And uh, just yeah. looking through uh, some of the committees, uh, people that would be familiar to... Um, our mining crowd, especially the CIM people, would be uh, Bill Mercer, Angela Hamlin, Garth Kirkham, Rob Schaefer, Glenn Nolan. You've got Tech as a sponsor, Komatso, Sequent with the data side. So uh, it definitely has a, the mining uh, angle to it. Yeah, so and Rio Tinto is now the patron sponsor. So oh, that's right. A, yeah, great. A little bit of the more recent addition. But uh, yeah, so they come in particularly through the uh, aluminum group, and you know they're, they're well represented on the west coast here with Kitimat, but uh, have right, significant right. interests across Canada and so on. So yeah, they've become a very important part as well. Yeah. So I guess the million-dollar question: What is the biggest problem facing uh, resource world and and, and bringing <laughs> in uh, supplies for the future, as it were, the next hundred years, in your view? Yeah. 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 So so. I, we always tend to focus, in particular as geoscientists, we focus on the source and where it comes from and finding new and, and most, you know, economic resources with as few problems as possible and obviously bringing them in and developing them. So we think of it, tend to think of it technically, and certainly there are resource challenges. If we think of where we are with many of our commodities, it's becoming a little more difficult to find them and particularly more difficult to find the ones with better concentrations, better grades of material that are the, you know, the best performers economically and often in technologically environmentally. So that's mm -hmm. a challenge without a doubt um, and will always be a challenge, but we're, we're, we are actually quite good at those things and so we do keep finding things. We may have to go a bit deeper and there will be other technical challenges in doing that. So, so that's, that's on the one hand, it's the source kind of and development challenge, but probably the, mm -hmm. the bigger challenge that may actually inhibit our ability to produce 
you know, the materials on schedule to meet the needs of society is our interaction with society. So it's the, it's the societal uh, human element of, of working with people on the ground, convincing mm -hmm. that we can do these things effectively and that we can deliver benefits to them as well as to everybody else in, in, a, in a realistic time frame. And of course, if when they disagree with us, that's when things go awry and things get held up or or don't go ahead at all. And that's both you know, hugely costly to those who've invested, but also damaging to our reputation and damaging to our ability to deliver the you know, the materials that society needs. Right. So how we address that and how we bridge that gap from the technical world to the non-technical world, I think is really where the challenge is going to be and continue to be over the certainly over the next decades. You know, it's gets pretty scary if you start thinking about more than 50 years, but mm -hmm. so over the next tens of years, that's going to be where the nub of many of our problems are. Right. And uh, just as a, a perfect case study right there in Vancouver with the pipeline uh, battles between Alberta and BC, if, if someone were to bring you in as a special emissary to be, uh, you know, go between, between the groups, like what would solve that problem in your view? Like, yeah, hugely challenging. Um, I mean, my approach always in these resource issues is to first and foremost to try and listen to the different views, and we're not, uh, you know, as in general, very good at that. And I don't mean our sector in particular. I mean people in general are not very good at uh, listening to polarized and disparate views. And yet, mm -hmm. if we don't start with that, we obviously won't make progress. And then my approach is always I see things tend to see things from the bigger picture. So I look at the longer term, and I. I tend to think that most people want the same outcome in the end. They want a, a world that offers them opportunity, that provides them employment, and, and that keeps things clean and and you know, a pleasant place in which we all want to live and, uh, and survive. And mm -hmm. so we can agree on that big picture, but the question is the detail and how we get from where we are now to where we may want to be in the future. And people start to diverge, you know, when they when they're different ways of how they go about this. You know, how fast an energy transition do you expect to have, and what is realistic while preserving an economy that benefits all the people? Mm -hmm. And so, at least, you know, the first my first approach is always to get people discussing that and agreeing on what they agree about, and that tends yes. to be about eighty percent, and then start to 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 deal on the things that uh, we disagree on and see if there's a way to compromise and move forward. But you know, that issue you know, has obviously become very, very difficult, not only polarized with the people on the ground, but now polarized between provinces and between the feds and the provinces and so on. So right. very challenging. Now, yeah. How much of environmental opposition do you think is just a psychological issue and how much is real uh, genuine opposition, as it were, like a destroyed fishery or something? And how much is just psychological, would you say? Uh, I don't think, yeah, psychological, I don't think of that. Philosophical, definitely. I think mm -hmm. uh, a lot of it is philosophical. I mean, the, you know, there are people who are fundamentally think you know, that this kind of development is wrong. And, yes. uh, you know, I, when I talk to those people, I always try and get them to also understand the things that we need and, and where they come from. And unfortunately, there's a, often a big gap between those two things. So one of the, at Cornell, what I've done recently, I've been teaching classes on kind of on resources, the big picture, energy, mm -hmm. minerals, and water, and I'm talking to students who, have, you know, I'm very lucky to talk to students who are very bright, um, but they come from all over the world. My last class, which was a, a module on on energy metals, so the metals, all the metals involved in energy production, mm -hmm. and I had uh, 20 odd students, and they represented nine countries, and mm -hmm. so they're super bright, super bright kids. And they know almost nothing about the resource business, and mm. so and that's and, you know, a bit more about energy generally than they do about minerals, but very very little. And yet they're fascinated by it once you got start introducing to them that 
to you know, where things come from and what it takes to get them from the ground into their phones or into their computers or whatever it may be and to think about the future you know where are we going to go with energy how quickly is it realistic mm-hmm. is it possible for us to change and what, what how much metal is that going to take to make those changes and so on so those right. are the kind of conversations i like to have with people and and uh, if people are really fixed philosophically, that, that gets very diffi- difficult. But if they're willing to think and listen, then uh, you, surprisingly, some people will, they won't change their views necessarily, but they at least will re- you know, agree that you have a different perspective that's valid. Right, right. Now, we're taking the long view here today, but how do you see things playing out, say, the next 100 years? Because you have these giant open pit mines that are <laughs> going to hit bottom at a certain point. Like, where do things go? Is it more efficient processing or... Uh, recycling or say 100 years from now what's going on in the mining world it's it'll be a combination so i think there's no doubt we'll be going more you know underground we'll be going deeper to find our resources and we may be looking mm-hmm. at alternative resources you know, you know whether that's the seafloor or seawater itself we'll be mm-hmm. looking at different different opportunities to find the resources that, that we need and we'll be doing it better there's no question you know the changes that we're seeing right now in the industry around uh you know, automation, use of digital knowledge, technology, sensors, all the things that allow us to be more efficient are going to, going to continue. So, I mean, one of the things, other things I'm involved here in Vancouver is with a, uh, a mining technology startup called MindSense that's trying to sort ore, you know, so that we yes. effectively can be more efficient about how we process the material we mine. And the, they and others doing similar things are going to be part of the, this future. We're going to be a lot smarter about how we mine. I think we're going to end up use, moving less rock for more metal as opposed to what we've been doing for the last you know, 30, 40 years, which is moving a lot more rock for less metal. So we've got to reverse that kind of pattern, and that will go forward into the future, and particularly as we then go underground and become more selective about how we mine underground in you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years kind of time frame. Right, right. 100 years out? Well, 100 years out, we may, be, we may move to solution mining. We may be doing more and more mm-hmm. direct leaching of material in the ground and extracting it with no physical movement of rock. And... Right. You know, some of that already in happening. I mean, for some uranium mining is done that way. Potash is done that way. People looking mm-hmm. at copper, so there's potential there. But uh, you know, can we actually really deal with deep resources and extract the metals directly and bring them to surface without contaminating groundwaters and other things that will be challenging? So right, yeah, right. I think it's, I think it's exciting. I mean, the, I love thinking about how these things are going to play out, and I think as I say, most people can agree that there are lots of opportunities. The time frame that's always going to be the tricky one. Yes, yes. Is there some technology that's kind of maxed out? It can't be pushed any further? Or are they all open to improvements? Uh, yeah, I think everything is open to improvements. Um, you know, Some of them are probably fairly minor, but so that's okay. They're all improvements. Uh, I don't see yes. any technology maxed out. I mean, there's technology certainly we've been using for a long time. I mean, we crush and grind rocks in, in you know, more or less the same way we've been doing it for 100 years. And mm-hmm. uh, lots of small improvements, size of equipment's grown, you know, efficiencies have grown, but they were still very inefficient. So if there was mm-hmm. a better way to, to break rocks that was more efficient, that would be a you know, highly desirable, but big, right, big challenge. Right. And uh, I guess as part of this um, conference, you're bringing in Aboriginal groups. How is that? Um, yeah, absolutely. Along? Yeah, We work pretty hard to uh, engage with a, a wide group of uh, Indigenous people, both locally and we're looking internationally as well. Um, mm-hmm. And we have will host something called The Gathering Place, which is an event done at uh, AIM's uh, Roundup Conference every year, and uh, mm-hmm. it's been quite successful. So we've, uh, AIM is helping us organize that same event for this conference, Resources for Future Generations. So there'll be a series of indigenous groups talking about their view of resources and how they see 
development of resources and the jobs and opportunities that, that, that they want. So that'll be, uh, I think, quite exciting. You know, these conferences with uh, certain disciplines, it gets very specific. Everyone has their own, uh, not code words, but uh, their own nomenclature. <laughs> How do you uh, get these diverse geoscientists working together and other engineers and policymakers? Is that a bit of a challenge? Great question. Absolutely. Huge challenge. I mean, we all love to gravitate to our own sort of preferred group of people, our own disciplines and, and what have mm-hmm. you, and that, that's natural. And we're going to try and accommodate that. There'll be lots of specialist sessions where people can go and really dig deep into the things that are important to them. But we're also trying to, or well, we have created a, a series of, uh, sort of conference sessions, plenary panels, uh, dialogues, and some and keynote addresses and public lectures, which we hope will draw everybody together periodically to kind of address some of these big questions. You know, how do we address energy? What's the what's the future of energy look like? You know, what what uh, what where's the water going to come from? What's the role of water in energy and 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 mining? What you know, what are the critical mining materials that we're going to need? You know, there's a lot of focus these days on so-called critical materials or critical minerals when you're those that mm-hmm. are either short of supply, limited sources, or restricted to a single jurisdiction, but now super important in terms of whether it's clean energy or communications or even defense, whatever it may be. So where are we going right, to right. find them? How are we going to manage those parts of the business? So those kind of issues attract you know, a broader audiences, and I think people kind of understand how critically important they're going to be in the future. So they hopefully right, will get right. engaged. Yeah. yeah, I was quite struck at our own uh, Canadian Mining Symposium last year in London. We had... Dave Garofalo from Goldcorp, and he was quite adamant that water was like the number one issue for miners, and yeah. uh, he was quite passionate about that and getting closed loops and uh, using much less water to uh, yeah. gain the goodwill of people. Yeah, when we look at those kind of disputes between people who are you know, local people, communities, indigenous groups who are opposed to mining uh, in mm-hmm. their sort of backyard or in their region, their territory, whatever it may be, often yes. water is the number one issue, and uh, mm-hmm. so. Obviously, engaging effectively and understanding their concerns is important, but also addressing how we handle water so that we are not seen as a threat to their water is, is uh, yeah, as you say, critically important. Yeah, certainly as a journalist, whenever I see a mining company go down to Latin America and there's a conflict with agriculture, you just know the mining project's going nowhere these days. Like yeah. The agriculture wins out. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, and, and it's usually water that's the, the real nub of the problem. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, the mining company will promise, oh, you can drive a truck for 10 or 20 years, but, but the local population, hey, we've been here for 6,000 years. We, we want our generations yeah. to be here farming this land. We don't care about 20 years of uh, driving a truck around. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, 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 a, it's a, a difficult discussion to have. And, yeah. uh, you know, you understanding what it is that they want, what they, people need, and how you can deliver that effectively and what the benefits look like are going to be interesting. You know, ultimately, in the future, I think those those relationships are going to be quite different. And I, I do see, you know, op- huge opportunities for indigenous people to start playing active roles in resource development with their own right through companies mm-hmm. that they create, businesses that they create, and then they will yes. become, you know, they'll become joint venture partners for us in mm-hmm. mining and uh, resource opportunities. And the, right. the you know the community company relationship will look very different in those kind of circumstances. Mm-hmm. I guess one of the problems with Aboriginal businesses, they're usually regional. Like you don't, they can't yep. scale up so much because of the political constraints. 
Yeah. But maybe so that will change. Yeah. <laughs> I think, again, you know, 100 years out, for sure, maybe maybe a few tens of years out, I could see that changing. And you see signs yes. of that already. There are definitely some successful Aboriginal-owned businesses in different parts of the world that are looking to do more than just benefit their immediate communities, which they will still want to do, obviously. Um, and, right. you know, good examples of that in Alaska with some of the native corporations there that are quite extensive now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I always find it interesting, uh, mining companies will you know, propose jobs as the benefit of a mine coming into the area. But as things get more and more automated, that uh, number of jobs and the skill level required for those jobs uh, becomes very high. Uh, yep. So that selling point of the jobs is, is diminishing uh, exponentially, it seems, over the last few decades. But certainly in the way we look at them right now, yes. And so, again, the, the thinking that has to go into the, you know, our plans and for the future is seeing what are those jobs going to look like in 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And they're not mm-hmm. going to be necessarily driving the trucks because the trucks may be autonomous. So what support yeah. roles do we need? And, and it's a lot of those are going to involve around IT. And so we need to have people trained in IT who live locally as well as regionally and what have you in order to fill yes. those positions. So, yeah, we, there's some innovative and creative thinking required to work out what employment's going to look like in around the mine of the future and how that employment can provide the right opportunities for the communities that are right there on the doorstep and potentially could benefit most but also could be impacted the most and so on. Yeah. Now you're bringing industry, you're bringing academia, Aboriginal groups, and you also want to bring in young people as well. What's uh, yep. going on um, You know, the title has future generations in it, and so mm-hmm. that implies people other than other than me, certainly, <laughs> and other than probably a substantial number of people currently in the industry. So we're really trying to draw them into the conference to participate fully, and we've got some of them in speaking roles and so on, but also having their own events and career events and mentoring events and so on because they they represent the future. And if they don't get engaged in the problems and the challenges ahead, then uh, it's going to be very difficult for us to maintain our industry. Mm -hmm. And uh, so far, how many delegates have you got and where are they from and their their field of interest? So, you know, it's growing. Registration is very active at the moment. So uh, Mm -hmm. we've passed through the 1,000 mark and heading on upwards. But uh, and they're coming from all over the world. It looks like about 50% of participants are going to be from internationally, and you know the remainder are going to be coming from across Canada and North America. And you know, Vancouver is a good base, so there'll be a substantial number of people coming from Vancouver. Unfortunately, of course, some of them, some people will be already out in the field at that time. Some of the geologists, so we'll lose a lose a few of those geoscientists. But uh, um, they'll be doing exciting things, hopefully, elsewhere. Right, and for anyone else in the world, uh, Vancouver in June is absolutely wonderful. <laughs> Gorgeous. It's not like, going to, not like going to the AMBC in January where it's rains the whole time. Uh, hopefully not. I mean, Vancouver could always have surprises, but June is usually yeah. a pretty good month, so we're hoping for yeah. some nice weather and everything. Vancouver on show at its best. And is there, uh, it's quite a loaded schedule there. Is there some must-see event? I see like Ross Beatty speaking, and you have uh, Rio Tinto um, yep. and stuff like that. Or something that stands out for like a mining crowd, as it were, that would be listening to the podcast. Yeah, so the uh, I mean the the some of the opening sessions, you know, as you said, mentioned Ross Beatty. He's always a great to great to listen to, and then yes. we'll be pulling in some the this group uh, involved Rio Tinto and Kamatsu and others. Um, but some of the I think some of the societal uh, focus we're going to have uh, you know. A dialogue on the future of energy, and that, of course, is important for the energy sector, but it also mm-hmm. affects directly all of the other sectors. And we're going to have a dialogue around who owns resources and who benefits, which will be pretty sharp and pointed, I suspect, but respectful. Yes. 
and uh, that'll think a bit you know, on the lines we've been talking about into the future is what roles do the different communities, indigenous and non-indigenous, play in resource development going into the future. So I, I, th- I think there's a there's a lot of different things for people. Uh, hopefully not too much. <laughs> hopefully right. there's enough that people can take in. And on the front end, the opening part involves you know short courses and field trips, and likewise on the back end. And then Vancouver, of course, offers all sorts of opportunities for social programming. So we've got some nice social events as well. And you were saying there's a bit of a dichotomy there with the uh, regular schedule and then some public. Uh, events yep. is, is that right? Yeah, is that free exactly. to the public? Or yeah, yeah. So there'll be a, two public lectures. One looking at kind of the Earth in general, just you know what is the planet all about and why does it have resources? Why does it sustain humanity, if you like? And then mm-hmm. the second one will look more specifically uh, at uh, water and you know what are the issues around water? I mean, water is, as we mentioned already, is so important to many aspects of resources, but also to people. And we hear dire stories about you know where it's going and not going, and we need to understand that and see what the solutions are going to be. Um, yes. you know, we have lo- a lot of water on the planet, so we're not short of water, but is it accessible? Are we looking after it appropriately? Can we do it better? Those are the key, key kinds of questions. Yeah, and I see you've got uh, Conaline lined up to be uh, shown uh, yep. one of those nice, yeah. one of my, my, my favorite mining movie of all time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a wonderful movie. So, yeah, so um, you know, the, the, the maker, filmmaker, Nettie Wire will be there to... Yeah. lead us into that and then have a discussion afterwards and the discussion will yeah. uh, we have actually the uh, um, head of the uh, Taltan uh, regional government uh, Chad uh, coming down to talk in that session as well right so, right yeah so I highly it. recommend anyone in Vancouver who hasn't seen Conaline go see that especially on the big screen you see things on the big screen you just can't see on your yeah. TV no, it's a wonderful piece of cinematography and a great display of the Northwest. okay anything else uh, we need to know about this event no, I just uh, encourage everybody who's interested to come and participate. I think it'll be different than the things from the events that you know most of us in Canada at least go to around PDAC yes. and, and Roundup, which are fantastic conferences, obviously. Um, but this will offer a little bit things that are a little different and opportunities to meet and talk to different people. So hopefully some cross-learning opportunities and a uh, chance to, to hear some different things and meet uh, new people. Right, and that is uh, June twenty. Uh, sorry, June 16th to 21st. But it's really yeah, a so the, conference. The main event is the 18th to the 21st. The the first couple right. of days are sort of kind of short courses. So the main event is the 18th to the 21st. Yeah, and then uh, people can go to the website rfg2018.org, and you're correct. also on Twitter rfg2018, and uh, yep. I guess Facebook and uh, LinkedIn, that kind of thing. For more the usual info. social networks. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Good luck with everything. Thanks for joining Thank us. Thank you today. very much. Yeah, enjoyed talking to you. Yeah. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. That's our episode for this week. Hope you enjoyed it. Have a great week. And uh, next week, we will hopefully have a Rick's Picks episode from a pub or restaurant in London. Uh, Have a great week and see you again. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.